Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. A warm welcome to all of us here at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those uh, watching from one of our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Last weekend, uh, here at Central Campus, Pastor Ken spoke from Matthew chapter 9, and he challenged us to pray for those in our areas of influence who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. For the harvest is rich, but the workers are few, and we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to commission more workers into the field. Prayer is our hidden mission. Today I'm going to continue on the theme of evangelism and witnessing because it is a value we want to elevate here at Center Street Church. We believe every Christian is called to be a witness. Every follower of Jesus Christ ought to have a missionary mindset because we are ambassadors of the good news. A few years ago, I was uh, talking to a pastor of a mainline church here in Calgary And I asked him what kind of evangelistic activities they are engaged in as a church. With a puzzled look in his face, he told me, we don't do any evangelism. We respect people of other faiths. They have their own way of relating to God, and we have our own, so I don't see the need to convert anybody. You know, while this may be a diplomatic, culturally acceptable response, it unfortunately doesn't align with the teachings of the Bible. When evangelism as a value slips down in our list of priorities, churches die. And it is sad to see the state of so many Christian organizations, denominations, universities, and churches in North America. When you look at their history and vision, they had a Christian heritage. They were Bible-based, Christ-centered, gospel-focused to begin with, But over the course of time, they drifted from the truth. Soon, cracks started to appear. One compromise led to a series of compromises. And before you know, it all came crumbling down, and they lost their biblical foundations. According to Christian author Mark Mittelberg, evangelistic entropy is the second law of spiritual dynamics. Mark Mittelberg says, Any Christian, any church, any denomination that is left to itself for long enough will tend to see the value of evangelism diminish to the point where it becomes almost normal not to reach out to people for Christ. And we here at Center Street Church, we are not exempt from this danger. And that is why we are preaching on this theme and reminding you that the only reason why we exist as a church is to introduce people to Jesus and help them become fully devoted followers of Him. Amen? Amen. Now, any talk about evangelism and witnessing could produce feelings of guilt because we are often told how terrible we are at it. And my goal today is to not to make you feel bad, 
but they actually encourage you to share your story of how you found Jesus, the difference Jesus has made in your life. For I believe if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your personal testimony is the most powerful witnessing tool you possess. Because it's the story of what Jesus has done in your life. Even the Apostle Paul used his testimony at least six times in the book of Acts to share his faith publicly. Today I want to take us to a narrative in the Gospels where you see the enthusiasm of a new believer who had a dark and dismal background, but she could not keep her newfound faith to herself. She shares her story, and the end result of that is a great harvest. There's a well-known passage in John chapter 4 where Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well. And while most sermons focus on the exchange between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, I want to show us today how the Samaritan woman went on to share her story and brought several other people to Jesus. I'm going to ask us to stand if you're physically able as we read God's word from John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the women's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. He said to the women, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Lord, we believe in this place that you indeed are the savior of the world, that you are the only one who can redeem us from our sins. Thank you, God, for how you reached out to us and that we have a story to tell to the nations. I pray that even this message today will be encouraging and challenging. 
that you will help us to get out of our comfort zone, to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word, that as we boldly proclaim our testimonies, let many people be drawn to you as well. So come and minister to us in the power of your spirit. And we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a teenager, still living in India, I joined the marketing team of a computer training institute. It was my first job. It was summertime, and I had to knock on the doors of uh, 2,000 houses in six weeks' time, when it's 45 degrees Celsius outside, and talk about this computer institute and how their courses will revolutionize your career. And I tell you, I hated my job every waking moment. I made an inner vow, I think, at the time that I will never, ever become a salesperson. And I secretly wished for fire to fall from heaven and consume that computer institute. <laughs> Don't judge me, I wasn't a Christian at the time. The reason I hated my job was I had to knock on the doors of complete strangers, smile, introduce myself, and give a memorized sales script, and act polite even when people slammed their doors on my faces. I tell you, that was the closest I've come to experiencing hell. Sometimes, that is how Christians feel about evangelism and witnessing. Like somehow we have to sell Jesus to another person and seal the deal. And I tell you, that is a faulty image of evangelism. There are all kinds of misconceptions about evangelism, and that's why many Christians conclude there is no way I can do it. And the end result is any prospect of witnessing causes our hearts to beat faster, palms get sweaty, knees lock, and we are extremely self-conscious when it comes to sharing our faith. Evangelism turns into an ordeal rather than an overflow of our heart. In the words of John Dixon, witnessing feels like a cross between a theological exam, an acting class, and a knife-edge rescue operation. Now what if sharing your faith is not about downloading a script to someone, but it is talking about your favorite topic? What if sharing your faith is not about following strict evangelistic outlines, but simply sharing your story? What if sharing your faith is not just about making cold calls, but it's about speaking in the context of relationships? What if sharing your faith is about witnessing or testifying as opposed to defending, arguing, or persuading? Now, there are many approaches to evangelism and different styles. I recognize that. In fact, Pastor Lawrence was teaching a great series here in the church on Thursday nights to equip people in the area of evangelism. So if it is an area you want to grow in your Christian life, I want to encourage you to check out those classes on Thursday nights. But without discrediting other techniques, I want to emphasize today on using your testimony to bring others to Jesus. Remember, 
Jesus has called us to be a witness, not his advocates, not his salesmen, but a witness who simply points people to Jesus by sharing our experience of him. Your story is unique. There is no other story like yours. Your story is the most powerful witnessing tool. It is the best apologetic to the gospel. No one can refute it. No one can argue against it. No one can dismiss it. Your story is more powerful and convicting than propositional truth statements. In this text that we read today, we are introduced to the Samaritan woman. She was a woman with a reputation, an outcast. No one talked to her, and she was isolated from mainstream society. Yet Jesus broke all social barriers to reach out to this woman, and her life was instantly transformed, and she recognized who Jesus was. And what does she do? She immediately went on to tell her story, and everyone who knew her saw the radical transformation that had taken place in her life, and they were drawn to Jesus as well. How did she do it? It sounds so simple, but how did she accomplish this, and what can we learn from her style of communication? I want to highlight three things that we can learn from this woman that will help us today to be effective ambassadors of the gospel. First of all, she was enthusiastic in her sharing. I love John's gospel. It's my favorite gospel. And I think John is a skilled writer. He provides interesting details that help the story to come alive. Look here in verses 28 and 29. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? In John's gospel, this woman at the well is the first person to whom Jesus openly reveals his identity as the Messiah. This is also the longest private conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. There's another interesting detail at the beginning of John chapter 4 that brings our chapter into perspective. Look at John chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Did you notice that? There was some sort of a, an inner compulsion because Jesus saw that there was a divine appointment awaiting him. It was not a, a geographical necessity for Jesus to go through Samaria. And Jewish travelers actually would travel around Samaria because they didn't want to get into that defiled territory. But Jesus deliberately entered the town because he knew he had an appointment with this woman. And as soon as she grasped who Jesus was, how he broke all barriers to extend to her living waters, John says 
the woman who is just a brand new believer left that water jar at the well and ran to the town to tell everyone about Jesus. I love this visual effect John provides here. Because she is so excited with this new discovery, she leaves the water jar and immediately runs to share this good news. Carrying a heavy water jar would have slowed her down considerably, and she knew there was something far more important at stake. See, when your heart is gripped by Jesus, you cannot keep quiet. That is why our witnessing is not a staged performance, but it is an overflow of our heart. You know, I just marvel at the enthusiasm of new Christians, brand new believers. They may not know a lot, but their passion is so contagious. They radiate with the joy of salvation, the knowledge that God loves them personally, and they exude this newfound sense of meaning and purpose. I love watching baptisms for the same reason. I just get such a kick out of it to see people submerged underwater, and when they come out, the joy radiating in their faces, it's priceless. Genuine enthusiasm and passion is what makes your faith contagious and irresistible. You know, I engage the Jehovah's Witnesses in conversation. I don't let them go without challenging their beliefs. They usually regret that they knocked on my door because I bring my Bible out. And I've talked to several of them. You know, in almost every case, I see that they are sincere in what they do, and they are doing this out of a sense of obligation. But what I don't see is the twinkle in the eye, that fire in the heart. It looks like they're just going through the motions, knocking one door after another. Let me ask you, when you share your story of the difference that Jesus has made in your life, can people see the excitement in you, that pulsating passion, or are you merely downloading content from memory? Church, the content of our message and what we communicate is important, but what makes the content come alive is our enthusiasm for Jesus. And yet, sadly, with the passing of years, some of us lose that sense of excitement in our Christian lives. We lose that sparkle, and halfway in our journey, we get stuck in a rut. And that is why before we make a commitment to evangelize others, we need to fall head over heels in love with Jesus. Because it is easier to talk about someone you are deeply in love with. Now think about this. The very nature of good news demands that we share it. Who in the world would ever want to keep a good news to themselves? When a person finds a dream job, when someone gets engaged, when a baby is born, when our favorite team wins, when we find a great deal online, 
we share it with our friends, neighbors, and family. And we don't have to go through some memorized script in our mind, but it flows so naturally when we talk about it, and everyone can feel our excitement and joy. The gospel of Jesus is the best possible news for a world that is lost in sin and engulfed in darkness. How much more excited we need to be when we bring this good news to our world. And this woman was a brand new believer, but she was so excited about her newfound faith, she left that water jar behind so she can share Jesus with others. Secondly, she was invitational in her style. When this woman left her water jar and ran into the town, she did not preach the four spiritual laws. She's not sharing some propositional truths. She's just extending an invitation to people. Rather than offering compelling evidences or proofs, she merely raises a question. She arouses the curiosity in others. Look at her words in verses 29 and 30. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. In John chapter 1, you find the same invitational phrase, come and see. When two curious disciples of John the Baptist asked Jesus where he was staying, Jesus said, come and see. When Philip told Nathanael that he had found the Messiah, to Nathanael's skeptical reply, Philip said, come and see. The Samaritan woman also uses the same invitational phrase. When we share the good news, we are inviting people to discover who Jesus is. You can't force that. You cannot ram Jesus down someone's throat. People have to make that decision on their own. That is why evangelism should not be forceful coercive, manipulative, or pushy. Such methods can easily backfire and cause greater harm. Author Kevin Harney tells this uh, funny story in his book, uh, Seismic Shifts. It was a battle, a wrestling match, a test of wills. Every day at exactly the same time, Margaret would open her bathroom cabinet and take out a huge bottle of castor oil. Then she would head to the kitchen to get a tablespoon. At the sound of the drawer opening and the silverware rattling, Patches, her Yorkshire terrier, would run and hide, sometimes under the bed, at other times in the bathtub or behind Margaret's recliner. Patches knew what was coming. Someone had convinced Margaret that her beloved dog would have strong teeth, a beautiful coat, and a long life if she gave him a spoonful of castor oil every day. So as an act of love, every single day, Margaret cornered Patches, pinned him down, pried open his mouth, and as he whimpered, squirmed, and fought her with all his strength, 
she poured a tablespoon of castor oil down his little doggy throat. And neither Patches nor Margaret enjoyed their daily wrestling match. And then one day, in the middle of this contest, with one sideways kick, Patches sent the dreaded bottle of castor oil flying across the kitchen floor, and the oil splattered all over the floor. Margaret ran to the pantry, grabbed hold of a towel to clean up this big mess. And when she got back, she was utterly shocked. There was Patches licking up the spilled castor oil with a look of satisfaction. And Margaret began to laugh uncontrollably. In one moment, it all made sense. Patches liked castor oil. He just hated being pinned down and having it being poured down his throat. Welcome to the world of evangelism. <laughs> well, we can see the parallel. The gospel message is powerful and attractive, but sometimes our methods and techniques come in the way of our message. The heart of evangelism is to draw people to Jesus. And that is why an invitational, relational style of evangelism is far more appealing. And in a post-Christian, post-modern world, we need to extend this invitation to people to experience Jesus for themselves. Which means we need to live an invitational lifestyle. We need to invite people to church. It is an age-old strategy that works even today. You know, invite people to our Christmas productions coming up on December 8, 9, and 10 weekend. It's a great opportunity for non-Christians to step into the doors of our church. You know, there's a lot of efforts and labor that goes behind our Christmas productions. And the reason we do it is not to entertain a Christian audience. But the heart of why we do it is because we see it as a great opportunity to introduce people to Jesus. So you can invite your co-workers, neighbors, friends to this upcoming service. Along with inviting people to church, we need to invite them to Christian community. Ed Stetzer states this in an article in Christianity Today. In our post-Christian nation, people who are skeptical of the faith are often attracted to the Christian community before they are attracted to the Christian message. Therefore, introducing people into the relational network of a local church community becomes an important aspect of their journey to the faith. The question for us is, are our community groups open and invitational? Or have we made this a closed group of Christians gathering together just to study their Bibles? Are our homes open for people to come? See, when we invite someone to our home, they get a full view of the message of our life. Nowhere else it is displayed as clearly as in our home. Let me ask you, when was the last time 
you had a non-Christian over in your home. You know, I was challenged recently when I was trying to get an appointment to meet with a Muslim leader in our city, and I asked him if he would like to meet me for lunch, thinking that I can take him to a nice halal restaurant. And his response was, restaurant? No, come to my home for lunch. And they demonstrated the best hospitality a person could ever possibly receive. And I realized I was a complete stranger, and yet they would call me home and serve lunch. Wow. I tell you, there's a lot we can learn from people of other cultures and other faiths. The question for us is, do we as Christians see our homes as a place of ministry for people to experience the warmth and love of Jesus? The Samaritan woman was invitational. She created an opportunity for people to come and see and encounter Jesus on their own. Thirdly, she was authentic in her witness. This woman had everything against her. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she had lived an immoral lifestyle. All these were cultural taboos which would have discredited her witness. The Jews saw the Samaritans as a half-breed, a mixed race, as people who had compromised their beliefs and introduced paganism into Jewish teachings. So they had absolutely no dealings with Samaritans. Along with that, this woman lived a questionable life. And that's why she had come to draw water from the well at 12 noon when the sun was blazing hot as opposed to the cool of the morning. She was avoiding people. She was an outcast of the society. And it took a lot of courage on her part to actually go back into the town and tell people about her new experience. And sometimes that's what it takes us today, a little bit of courage to go outside of our comfort zone, and then you see God shows up and he takes over. Now look at the response to this woman's invitation. This is fascinating. Verses 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What an amazing miracle unfolded. How did it happen? Now, I believe it is because of the authenticity of this woman's witness. When she encountered Jesus, maybe for the first time in her life, she received unconditional love and acceptance. She was being noticed for the right reason being married to five different men and now living together with a man, 
Her trust had been betrayed countless times, her heart broken into a zillion pieces. The society might have branded her as a promiscuous woman, but the truth was she was a hurting woman with deep emotional wounds. And all along, her heart had been longing for true love, significance, and acceptance. And she was searching for them in the wrong places. And Jesus, who knew everything about her, her shady past, her sinful actions, her pain and sorrow, did not shirk away from her in disgust. Jesus did not shame her or guilt her or condemn her. He invited her to something far better. He offered her living water, the only water that could satisfy the spiritual thirst in her heart. And for the first time in her life, this woman felt fulfilled. And that one single encounter with Jesus was so life-transforming that she bubbled with excitement as she invited others to meet Jesus. Some of you here today, you can relate with this woman because you have been longing for true love, significance, and acceptance. And maybe you've been looking for them in the wrong places and you feel so let down. And I want you to know, only Jesus can fill the void in your life. You need to give your life to Jesus in order to experience true love, true significance, and true acceptance. Maybe the Lord brought you to church today just to hear this part of the message. If you're sitting here and you can relate with what I'm saying, I want to encourage you to come and talk to one of us after this service. We will be happy to spend time with you. The Samaritan woman who avoided people living under bondage to shame was set free from that bondage and she was able to face the people in her town. That in itself is a miracle. Those very people she was hiding from those very people she avoided, those very people whom she once detested, she goes to them and she says, I have met this person who knew everything I have done. He knew me inside out, yet he accepted me. He saw me not as a woman with a reputation, but he saw me as someone with intrinsic worth. Could he be the Messiah? Why don't you come and find out for yourselves? And it was obvious to everyone who heard her story. This was true. She's not faking it. This is an authentic witness. People can argue all day about facts, but they cannot argue against a changed life. And sometimes we think a powerful life change story involves spectacular sins, terrible hardships, or supernatural miracles in order to get people's attention. And some of us who don't have those spectacular stories dismiss our own testimonies saying it may not be that effective. But the truth is, we all were dead in our sins and we were made alive in Christ. 
That is such a powerful experience that it is amazing enough. It's not how graphic our story is, but how authentic our experience of Jesus that speaks volumes to our world. And not only do we have stories to tell of our salvation, we have stories to tell of God's daily involvement in our life, helping us in our struggles. And when we share those stories, it speaks volumes and witness to the life-changing power of the gospel. So like the Samaritan woman, let us share our stories of the difference Jesus has made in our life. Do it with enthusiasm. Adopt an invitational style and let it be an authentic witness. Now for the last part of this message, I want to turn our attention to the conversation Jesus has with his disciples. And I want to make a couple of observations. Look at verses 34 to 38. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Here's my first observation. We need to develop a spirit of expectancy. We hear this all the time, that we live in a post-Christian West, the church is declining. Christian influence in the Western world is waning. The culture is secularizing at a rapid rate. And all of these things result in a feelings of darkness and despair. Let me ask you, is that really a biblical picture of our world? Does that how the New Testament talk about the church of Jesus Christ? It was Billy Graham who once said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to turn out all right. Jesus in this conversation is quoting a proverb that was common in their time. Harvest time is four months from now. What that means is there's a gap between sowing and reaping the harvest, and it's approximately four months. But Jesus is saying to his disciples here, why wait? Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In the context of this story, the Samaritans who were spiritually despised by the Jews were ready for the harvest. The most unlikely people of Jesus' time came streaming to him. There are people today we tend to put into categories and we assume they're far from God. They're beyond God's reach. 
But that is simply not the case. People are longing, they are craving, they are spiritually hungry, and they are trying to fill those cravings in the wrong places. But when they find the one who can truly bring satisfaction to their life and give them life eternal and full, they are drawn to Jesus. We may be experiencing a great deal of cultural shifts in North America. But I want to remind us today, the Lord is still on the throne and He is the God of the harvest. See, the only reason anyone comes to faith is not because of our fancy, creative, evangelistic strategies, but it is because the Holy Spirit of God is still at work. He opens the blindfold from people's eyes. He breaks the shackles that are holding people down. And we see that He brings people to the truth of Jesus. He does it even today. So let's never lose that sense of expectancy. You know, as I read my New Testament, I don't see this dark, depressing picture of Christian influence waning and the world taking over. Do you see that? Far from it. I see the picture of a church on the move, advancing in power, filled with God's spirit, conquering territories, overcoming forces of darkness, and multitudes of people being swept into the kingdom. And when Jesus looks at our community today, he doesn't say, oh, look how terrible this is in Calgary. We have new mosques that are coming up. We have gangs that are increasing. Refugees from the Middle East are coming to the city. Atheists are doing their campaigns. Sexual promiscuity is on the rise. Calgary has no hope. You don't hear that from Jesus. Jesus looks at our city of Calgary and he says, the harvest is rich. Opportunities abound here in Calgary to introduce people into the kingdom. There are hundreds and thousands of people in the city who are this close to coming to know Jesus. That's the challenge Jesus gives to his church. And he says, I need more workers who can go into the harvest field and reap the harvest. The darker our world gets, the message of hope that we have will shine brighter. And here's my second observation. Evangelism is teamwork. Jesus says in this conversation, one person sows, another reaps. Others have done the hard work, but you reap the benefits of the labor. When you see evangelism as teamwork, we see that multitudes of people are involved in bringing one single person into the kingdom. There are many links in the chain. You may not be the most outspoken evangelist, but are you playing your role faithfully to form those links in the chain? Without the sowing of seeds, there is no harvest. 
So our faithful praying, our financial giving, good works done in Jesus' name, our corporate worship as a church, all serve to promote the gospel. And just because someone refuses to believe in your witness doesn't mean that you have failed. Evangelistic success is not about sealing the deal or getting people to pray the sinner's prayer. If we help a person move one step closer to Jesus, then we have played our role in the chain. And God uses many links in the chain that will ultimately result in that person's salvation. So my challenge that I'm issuing to us today is, let's join hands together as a church intentionally to pray, to share, to give, and God will use our collective efforts to reap a great harvest beyond anyone's comprehension. Let me close this with an application. I've encouraged you today to share your story. It's your most powerful witnessing tool. Use it often. Share what Jesus has done for you, the difference that he has made in your life. I want to ask you today, have you ever written down your testimony? If you've never done this exercise, it may be one of the most profound spiritual experiences to see the overarching theme of your life, to see the point of convergence where Jesus met you. You will be actually amazed to see how God was at work a long time before you even came to know him, bringing you to the point where you are willing and ready to receive Jesus. So write down your testimony, maybe under 100 words, so you can share it over two or three minutes with somebody. And I want us to put a link on the screen right now. We would love to hear your story. There's nothing more encouraging for me and the staff here at our church to hear what Jesus has done in your life. So if you can share your testimony with us, we will be delighted to read about what God has done in your life. But also prayerfully ask God for this next season of your life to bring opportunities your way to share your story. And you will be amazed to see what God does in response to that prayer. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to an end. This is a time for us to respond to what God has spoken to your heart. So I want us to maintain a moment of silence so we can be sensitive to God's promptings. God at this moment may bring some people to your mind, people with whom you need to share your story. There are others God is challenging you to do that exercise of writing down your testimony and praying earnestly for opportunities to open up to share your story. 
So let's maintain a moment of silence and be in tune with God's spirit to see what he is speaking to us right now. And then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for coming into our stories. Even when we were walking in the wrong direction, far from you, you intervened. You revealed yourself to us. You removed our blindfold that we who were once blind were now able to see the beauty of your salvation. And we are no longer the same because of that. So we thank you, God, for that deep work that you have done in us, that today we have a story to tell to the nations. I pray, God, that you will open opportunities for every Christian here in our church to talk about what you've done, the difference that you've made in our lives. And as we declare our stories to the world, we pray that your spirit will prepare their hearts and will draw people to Jesus. So we pray, God, for our Sinistry Church, that as one church, we will join hands in advancing your mission and your kingdom work, that you will use each one of us as individuals and collectively as a community to cause your mission to advance here in Calgary and around the world. We pray that there will be a ripple effect as you inspire us and encourage us to share our stories. We will see a multitude of people come to know you as a result of that. And we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 